Why don't you reach your Bibles and stand with me for our scripture reading. If you don't have your Bible with you today, there's a pew Bible in front of you you can grab as well. And as you stand, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading chapter or verses 27 through 30. It's page 553 in your pew Bibles as Pastor Bruce continues in his series on the Ten Commandments. We're looking at Commandment 7 today. In the series, in the message titled "Adultery in My Heart," we'll be reading Matthew five twenty-seven through thirty. You have heard that it was said to those of old, "You shall not commit adultery," but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you to have one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would just change our hearts, help us to just apply the Ten Commandments in our lives and to know that they they do matter uh, and that they are a standard um, and and, uh, and principles which we can base our life off of. Uh, Just open our hearts and minds to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we said, and as everybody knows, it's Father's Day. So how many of you still buy cards for your fathers? Raise your hand if you buy a card for your father. All right, most, a lot of you do still. How many of you buy serious cards for your father? You're the serious type. You buy the serious kinds that convey a serious message to your father. And that, you know, that reflects your personality, who you are, what you want to say. How many are on the other side? You buy the funny cards. Oh, yes, my brother's raising his hand. My other brother should be raising his hand, too, because they always buy dads the funny cards. And uh, how many of you dads, you receive the funny cards from your children? Yes, my father's right, yes. And uh, I won't ask which you, which you enjoyed the most, the funny or the serious, because uh, they're coming from your kids, and you appreciate all of them, whatever the case may be. But greeting cards are a part of our culture. And, in fact, we have uh, a one young lady here uh, who works for Hallmark and, you know, the big famous uh, card corporation. And they're just a part of our culture. They serve kind of as an expression of who we are. But a few years ago, the Los Angeles Times reported that Kathy Gallagher developed a line of cards for couples involved in, get this, adulterous affairs. In an article entitled, Adulterers Need Cards Too, The writer described a Christmas card developed for this series of greeting cards, which includes the line, as we celebrate with our families, I will be thinking of you. According to the Los Angeles Times, Ms. Gallagher says her secret lover collection of 24 cards is the first line exclusively for people having affairs. And she expects hot sales. So yes, there's nothing like a little home-wrecking sentiment to warm the adulterer's heart during the Yuletide season. Such is the generation and culture in which we are living in today. It's an adulterous generation, an adulterous culture. And while adultery, get this, it's not a modern invention. Sometimes we forget that. It's not a modern invention. This has been a struggle with mankind Since way back in the beginning, remember these Ten Commandments go to the nation of Israel uh, long before our time. And yet, notice 
I think it's safe to say here as it comes up on the screen, today we are living in one of the most adulterous generations, and yet there's nothing good about adultery. Hopefully you agree with that statement. There's nothing good about adultery. I challenge you to go ahead and try. Name one good thing about adultery. Name one good thing adultery ever accomplished. Name one home made stronger by unfaithfulness in a spouse. Name one, point out the children who are made happier because someone broke their marriage vows. Search the pages of history and see if you can find one good thing to say about adultery. Even one positive benefit of unfaithfulness. And I'll submit to you that you cannot. If you only remember one thing about this message this morning, as we be focused on the seventh commandment here, is to remember this. There's nothing good about adultery. And yet we live in a culture that acts as if there's no big deal about adultery. Adultery wrecks homes, it destroys marriages, it harms children, and it ruins lives. And so no wonder God comes to us now and he says loud and clear in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And adultery was so well understood, even by the nation of Israel, that it needed no great elaboration. It needed no definition or even an explanation by God. We know exactly what God meant here in this commandment. You shall not commit adultery. A cartoon offered this insightful commentary on our culture. Moses has just returned from meeting with God on Mount Sinai where he received the Ten Commandments. And he says to the people, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. First, the good news. I talked him down from 21 to 10 commandments. But the bad news is he won't budge on number seven. He won't budge on number seven. Now, we chuckle at this, but this cartoon got it all wrong. Listen, God not budging on the seventh commandment is, get this, it's good news, not bad news. It is good news for our lives, it's good news for our marriages, it's good news for our society. Remember, the Ten Commandments are God's blueprints for our behavior and for our blessings. And so God knows better than anybody else that there's nothing good about the sin of adultery. It stabs at the heart of the marriage covenant. It strikes at the heart of love and trust between a husband and a wife. And it undermines the marriage relationship and the family itself. Adultery even begins the breakdown of order that threatens our entire society. For how can we trust each other if we cannot trust each other in our most intimate commitments in relationships? As Dr. Albert Moeller writes in his book, a culture that embraces adultery accepts within itself a poison pill for every other relationship. So, with that background in mind, on the seventh commandment, where do we go from here? What do we need to take away this morning from this commandment that God gives to us even today? I think when it comes to keeping the seventh commandment, we better pay heed to two things. We better pay heed to two truths or two principles, whatever you want to call them this morning. And the first thing to pay heed to 
is God's prohibition against adultery. There's a reason God prohibits it. There's a reason God forbids us to commit the sin of adultery. Now, I will admit up front here that today it is much easier to get married than it is to stay married. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And one reason why is because we, even in our country, even as believers, we have forsaken God's commandment found here in the seventh commandment against adultery. A man wrote to Dear Abby, and known by you know known as Ann Landers, or she is Ann Landers, but known as Dear Abby. She's, he writes, Dear Abby, I'm in love, and I'm having an affair with two different women other than my wife. I love my wife, but I love these other women too. Please tell me what to do, but don't give me any of that morality stuff. Sign, too much love for only one. Abby's answer was classic. She wrote back, dear, too much love for only one. The only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. (laughs) Classic, classic answer from dear Abby. But this raises a big question. It's a question perhaps you never asked, but I'm telling you our culture asks it all the time. And it's a question, well, if sex is so good and so fun, then why has God made sex so seemingly restrictive? Why has he put it within the boundaries and the context of a marriage relationship? Does God just want to destroy the fun in our lives? After all, we're sexual beings. The desire for sex is God-given. So what's God doing here? Well, God, as I've said before, he is not a killjoy. He's not a killjoy. But God is opposed to what kills joy. And nothing kills joy faster in a marriage than adultery. And so the biblical view of sex begins with the acknowledgement that God created marriage and and sex within the boundaries of marriage. Listen, God gave it to us as a positive, fulfilling activity, but he wants it to be channeled for our very best interest. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, and he tells us in Genesis 2, 24 and 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So what we see from the very beginning is this. Sex is God's wedding gift to be enjoyed within the limits of a marriage covenant. Sex is God's wedding gift to be enjoyed within the limits of a marriage covenant between, and we may as well, since we're talking about marriage, let's go ahead and define marriage from God's point of view. A biblical marriage is one man and one woman, and the ideal, his plan for it, is for a lifetime. So the Bible celebrates the sexual act of love as a gift from God, but within the limits of marriage. In fact, the biblical view is that sex is not merely procreational. It's not just for having children. It's also relational and even recreational. All you have to do is read Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 19. Read the whole book of Solomon, Solomon, and you will see that this gift of sex that God has given to married couples is for love, it's for pleasure, it's for joy. And in order to protect the joy of sex, 
God has given us the seventh commandment. Like everything good, though, sex must be properly used and not abused. Or else we will become abused by it. Richard Foster, in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, writes, Sex is like a great river that is rich and deep and good as long as it stays within its proper channel. The moment a river overflows its banks, it becomes destructive. And the moment sex overflows its God-given banks, it too becomes destructive. So sex, when properly controlled and expressed within a marriage, is a beautiful thing. It's fantastic. But sex outside of marriage becomes very destructive to those who are involved in it and even to those around them that it affects as far as the children, families, you name it. So the seventh commandment, as you see on the screen, it protects the marriage relationship. It protects the marriage relationship by prohibiting any sexual activity that violates the marriage covenant. Now, a simple question here, but we probably need to answer it, and that is, well, what does it mean to commit adultery? Because that specifically in context is what the commandment is about. So what does it mean to commit adultery? Well, the simplest answer, which I think most of us here understand, is that adultery is marital infidelity. It's having sexual relations with someone other than your spouse. So the primary purpose here for the seventh commandment is to protect the preciousness, the sacredness of marriage, what God has given to us. Adultery is the greatest sexual sin because it violates the trust between a husband and wife. It begins to break the bond of a marriage covenant. And so for this reason, adultery does more damage than any other forms of sexual sin. The Bible even confirms this by making the penalty for adultery so severe. For the Israelites, you can go to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and you read what the penalty is. I mean, I mean it doesn't fly in our culture today, but look what, it, what the penalty was for the children of Israel when God says if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That was the penalty. That was how severe it was. Was this punishment just? Well, Douglas Wilson, he writes in his book, Certainly an adulterer is worthy of death. A man who will betray his wife, or we could even say a wife who will betray his, her husband, will betray anyone in anything. Adultery is treason against a family, and God hates it. And so that's why you have the severity of the punishment for the children of Israel. And so while the seventh commandment, it mentions only the sin of adultery, when you set the commandment within the context of the rest of God's word, and what is the rest of God's word to? It calls us to purity. And so when you take the seventh commandment and set it in the context of purity, this commandment includes any form of sexual immorality, such as fornication. You're like, well, what's the difference between adultery and fornication? Adultery, by definition, is, is uh, as we said, marital infidelity. It's when a spouse, someone who's already married, is having sex with someone other than the spouse. Fornication is when somebody who's not married is now having sex. Uh, and we normally attribute this to premarital sex. It also forbids prostitution, 
homosexuality, sex with an animal, and sexual violence, which we could put under that category, rape, incest, child abuse, and any form of sexual abuse within a marriage. And by implication, even, the seventh commandment also forbids anything that causes adultery. I mean, most of us here, we understand that most adulterous relationships, they don't start out with sex. They start out with inappropriate intimacy. There begins to be emotional bonding, intimate talk, before they get to the sexual act, if you will. In short, what God comes to us and says in these Ten Commandments here, number seven, is it prohibits any sexual activity that violates the marriage covenant that a husband and wife commit to one another on their wedding day. The New Testament repeats this commandment in various ways. You can go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, where it tells us to flee sexual immorality. God says in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and then notice, and all the sexually immoral. Now, again, Because we are living in such an adulterous generation, most people today believe there is nothing morally wrong with having sexual relationships outside of marriage. But I want to give you here just two reasons. There's more than this, but I want to give you what I think are two primary reasons why God forbids adultery. First reason is because adultery, as we've already talked about a little bit, it destroys the bond of the marriage covenant with our spouse. It destroys that bond. Why is adultery in all its forms forbidden? Listen, again, I cannot say this enough. Not because sex is bad. But because God designed sex to be such a powerful force for our good. Sex is like super glue. When used properly, it seals the bond of matrimony between a husband and wife. As Pastor Timothy Keller says, who's a pastor up in the New York City area, he writes this, sex is the covenant cement that helps to hold a marriage secure. This is one reason why Paul comes to us in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, and and he tells us, it almost comes across as a command for husbands and wives to have sexual relations on a regular, consistent basis. Listen to his words. He says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive one another. Why? Because the act of sex between a husband and wife is like super glue. It bonds. It solidifies everything that's good about the marriage covenant, marriage relationship. Now, let's be honest, though. We all know of marriages that have been shattered because of adultery. You can think of it even now in your mind. And you may be asking, well, you know, I think the more important question is not, is, is sometimes, well, why is that? Why of all sins does this sin shatter a family and a marriage more than all others? Well, there's a reason behind that, as we've said already, because it destroys the bond. I like what Philip Ryken writes in his commentary He says, since sex is like super glue, squeezing it out at the wrong time 
or in the wrong place always creates an awful mess. The wrong things get joined together, and getting them unstuck again tears at the soul. I'll never forget an illustration that I used with the teens when I was a youth pastor when teaching them about sex within God's parameters of marriage and trying to illustrate for them the damages that is done when uh, two people come together and have sex. And so what I did, I, I had two pieces of construction paper, blue and pink, and we glued them together. And then I had one of the teens come up, and I said, now separate these two pieces of paper. Separate them. And try to do so in a clean break. And of course, what do you think happened? They tore. It was impossibility. And that's what happens to our souls. Emotionally, we have baggage that's left over and carried over into the next relationship. Because God created that that created us for that, this purpose here. As Lewis Smeeds writes in his book, we cannot take our bodies to bed with someone and park our souls outside in the car to wait. Many people try to do so, but the damage is already done. And this is why God forbids adultery. He knows how he created us. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's best for us. It's a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a sacred bond. And it destroys the bond of marriage between a husband and wife. It's the first reason why God forbids it. But there's another reason, which I think is an even greater reason why God forbids adultery. And that is adultery defiles the picture of Christ's covenant love to his church. Now, let's just be honest Let's be up front. We don't think of our marriage relationship in this term right here. Most Christians don't don't think of their marriage like this. And yet the Word of God says that's what marriage is a picture of. Our marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. The words joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh in Genesis 2. Point to something far deeper and more permanent than serial marriages and occasional adulteries. What these words point to is marriage as a sacred covenant rooted in covenant commitments that stand against every storm of life, as long as you both shall live. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, this, he says, is the mystery of marriage, and it's profound. This mystery of marriage, it's patterned after Christ's covenant relationship with this church. And what is Christ's covenant relationship with this church like? Well, the church is called the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. And of course, what did Christ do for us as the church? And he gave his life for us. Unconditional sacrifice. Christ loves his bride. He died for his bride. And Jesus says he will never leave his bride. He'll never forsake it. And the ultimate purpose of my marriage, the ultimate purpose of your marriage, is to put that kind of covenant relationship on display for the whole world to see. And God says that brings me glory. You want to know how you can bring glory to God in a marriage relationship, stay faithful to one another. 
Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And do so like Christ loves the church. And when we do that, we are communicating to a world, uh, an adulterous generation that has no understanding of this, and yet their hearts inwardly long for that kind of covenant marriage and security within a relationship. Because even unbelievers understand, even within themselves a little bit, that adultery messes up a relationship. They feel the pain, they've gone through the heartbreak, and so they know, even though they may not understand the biblical reasons behind it. But what we do as believers, when we are faithful to our spouses, we, communi- we are a testimony, and we, we are a demonstration of how Christ loves the church, and that brings glory to God. That's the primary reason why God now comes to the nation of Israel and now comes to us as the church today and says, listen, don't commit adultery. Why? Because adultery defiles this picture of Christ's covenant love. You see, for the Christian, adultery is a kind of spiritual desecration of this picture. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 13 and 15, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And if that is true, if our bodies are in Christ and our bodies are for Christ, then adultery is a sin, first and foremost, against whom? Christ. This is why David, as we'll look at here in a few minutes, when he confesses his sin of adultery in Psalm 51, he comes out and he says, I have sinned against God, first and foremost. This is why we need to pay heed to God's commandment. It's why we need to pay heed to his prohibition against adultery. It destroys the bond of marriage, and it defiles the picture of Christ's love to his church. But there's also another reason Another thing we need to pay heed to, and that is God's protection against adultery. His protection against it. As we have said, we're living in an adulterous generation where sexual immorality is as common in our culture as going to Taco Bell and having a burrito. It happens all the time. And in our culture today, people are looking for love, but they are settling for sex outside of God's boundaries, and it's destroying lives, marriages, and homes as a result. And it's tempting to think, as we sit in the pews here in the church, because right now it is tempting to think that our hypersex culture is the problem. But of course, sexual immorality is nearly as common in the church today. And this just shows that the problem is not so much our culture. The problem is our own sinful hearts. This is where adultery begins. Notice that as it comes up on the screen. The seeds of adultery germinate in the heart, Jesus says, with lust. It's where it begins. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus raised the bar higher on the seventh commandment. Look what he says again in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. 
Jesus now comes along and he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, adultery is not just about what one does with the body. It is also about what happens in the heart, Jesus says. Jesus' whole point here is that it's quite possible to commit adultery in the heart without ever physically touching someone. So adultery, we can say now, because Jesus raises the bar higher on this commandment, adultery is much more than the physical act. Or perhaps we should say it is much less than the physical act. Adultery can be the lustful look. It can be the sexual thought. It can be the imagined act in the mind. This means you may outwardly remain faithful to your wife or to your husband while inwardly lusting after someone else. That inward lusting, and though it remains hidden for years, it's what Jesus calls adultery in the heart. And it is a way of breaking the seventh commandment quietly, silently, and repeatedly. You say, well, what is lust exactly? Jesus uses the word lust. He says, don't look at a woman with lustful intent. Uh, Other translations, the NIV translation says, don't look at a woman lustfully. So what is lust? Well, to lust is to look at a woman and even a man and to imagine the sexual possibilities. That's a short, concise definition. Jesus told his disciples not to look at anyone lustfully. So looking is not the problem. The problem is to look at someone to satisfy one's own sexual hunger in a sinful way. As Paul Mickey writes in his book, Get Rid of the Lust in Your Life, he says, lust divorces love, it spurns care, it denies communication, and it disregards commitment. But here's the problem. And this is a big problem with us. It's the problem for every one of us here today. Here's the problem when it comes to the deadly sin of lust. Notice this coming up on the screen. Most people have a higher tolerance for inward sins than they do for outward sins. Most of us, if we're honest, we have to say, I have a higher tolerance for the inward sins in my heart than I do for the outward sins that people see. But we need to understand that inward sins are just as fatal. You see, if not controlled, lust can lead to self-destruction. The late Paul Harvey, how many enjoyed listening to Paul Harvey? He was great, wasn't he? The late Paul Harvey used to tell the story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And he told it illustrating the self-destructive nature of lust. You may have heard this before, but it's great. It's, it's, it's a great illustration. He says, first Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and he allows it to freeze. And then he adds another layer of blood and another and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. So it would be something like this. And when the wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to look fast, lick faster and more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. 
Fervishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous, carnivorous appetite just craves more and more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. It's a fearful thing that people, too, can be consumed and destroyed by their own lust. These cravings for immediate gratification often lead to adultery, which shatters lives, marriages, and homes. But before we move on, we need to stop for a moment, and we need to answer a rather important question here. And the question is this, coming up on the screen. Is there a difference between mental adultery and physical adultery? In other words, is there a difference between adultery in the heart and the physical act of adultery? And the answer is yes, there is a difference. Notice this in your notes. Jesus says the essence of lust and adultery is the same sin. But he did not say mental adultery has the same effect as the act of adultery. You see, when it comes to adultery in the heart, don't buy into the fallacy that says, if you've thought it, you've done it. If you've thought it, then you've done it. People who buy into this fallacy, they reason with themselves, and they say something like this, well, since I've already committed adultery in my heart, I may as well go ahead and follow through with the action. Either way, I'm guilty. But this reasoning is based on the assumption that there's absolutely no difference at all between mental adultery or adultery in the heart and the act of adultery. Without minimizing, though, the impact of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew. In fact, without minimizing the hurt and the pain caused by a spouse who's caught lusting at women, either a physical woman or lusting at women on the Internet through pornography or a magazine, whatever the case, and I do not, do not want to minimize that pain and do not want to minimize what Jesus is saying here. But we need to recognize that there are substantial differences between lust in the heart and the physical act of adultery. I'll give you some examples. Adultery, that is the physical act, breaks the marriage covenant. Adulterous thoughts do not. Adultery, as Jesus later on teaches in Matthew, provides the grounds for divorce. Adultery in the heart does not. Adultery defiles each other's bodies. Mental adultery does not. Adultery is a vehicle for pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases. The mind is not. So don't think, oh, I've committed adultery in my mind. I may as well go commit the act of adultery now too. No. Foolish thinking. This is not to say that mental adultery is not a serious matter. 
We've already seen that it is. It's so serious that Jesus, in the same passage here, is calling us to a radical purity in our lives. Listen to what he goes on and writes now in verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What is Jesus saying here? I mean, are we to literally cut off an arm and gouge out an eye if need be? Well, Jesus is using what is called hyperbole. How do you say it? I didn't say it. Hyper. Hyperbole. Yeah, whatever. He's using a form of exaggerated speech. And he's doing so to make a point for us. And his point is this. There must be a severe gouging out of sin in our hearts. There must be a severing and gouging out of that sin if we are to experience victory over the sin of lust. In other words, Jesus' whole point is because adultery begins in the heart with lust, we better take some radical steps in our lives to safeguard our heart, our lives, and our marriages. With this in mind, I want us to look at a case study and a fair proofing your marriage here. And I want us to look at a case study from one of the most shocking examples in all the Bible, and that is the story of David and Bathsheba. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. We don't have the time to do so. But you remember King David. He was the greatest king who ever lived. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 11 how one night he arose from his sleep, from his couch, and he was walking along on the roof of the king's house. That warm spring evening, David had everything a man could ever want in society. Think about it. He had conquered his enemies. He had established his kingdom. He was living in royal luxury. He was famous and handsome at the same time. And more than that, the Bible says he was righteous, a man after God's own heart, which just goes to show you that none of us are above this. No one here is. I'm not. You're not. Because although David was a man after God's own heart and he had everything you could want in life, he still fell victim to the oldest sin in the world, and that is the sin of lust. And in the end, he paid a costly price for his sin because he failed to pay a price to guard his heart, his eyes, and his mind. So let's look at three steps in a fair proof in your marriage. Number one is to guard your heart. Guard your heart. Make godliness your priority in life. You see, David exposed himself to temptation because he failed to make godliness his number one priority at this time in his life. David's downfall begins with these ominous words in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, when it says, In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel But David remained at Jerusalem. Listen, this verse is telling us so much more than just where David is at the moment. It's telling us where he wasn't, and it's telling us what he wasn't doing that he should have been doing. You see, Israel was still at war. 
And so David should have been out front leading the people in battle. Instead, he was back in Jerusalem, walking back and forth on his rooftop, killing time. And in so doing, he was an accident waiting to happen. David left his heart unprotected the moment he neglected his duty. And so it's not all surprising that it was at this time that he indulged in sexual sin. You see, understand, again, sexual sin is never just about sex. It's always connected to the rest of our life. David never would have committed adultery if he had been doing what God had called him to do in the first place. Instead, he neglected his duty as king, and there in his idleness and in his isolation, he gave in to temptation. Matthew Henry said it well. If David had been at the front, he wouldn't have been on the roof. When we are out of the way of duty, we are in the way of temptation. And so this shows just how vulnerable we are to sexual sin when we are living for self and not for God and others. So one way to gain victory over lust is to live self-sacrificially rather than self-indulgently and to do so in every area of our lives. Why? Because godliness, listen to me, godliness in one area of life promotes godliness in other areas of life. So guard your heart by making godliness your highest priority in every area of your life. Listen, King Solomon, who learned this the hard way, he writes these words in, Psalm, in Proverbs 4.23. He says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So guard your heart. Number two, guard your eyes. Guard your eyes. Make a covenant with your eyes. You see, David made a serious tactical mistake in verse 2 here when it says from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Now, if David had simply caught a glimpse at Bathsheba, listen, he would not have been guilty of sin. But David did so much more than that. David's glance, it became a gaze. He basically looked Bathsheba up and down, thinking about what he would like to do with her. The eye. Our eyes are the window to sinful desire. So another way to gain victory over lust is to guard our eyes. And godly women have always understood that this requires modesty in the way they dress. Godly men have always understood that this means being extremely careful about what we keep looking at. Peter warns us against having eyes full of idolatry in 2 Peter 2.14. And Job's remedy was this. When he says in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Guarding our eyes has never been more important than it is today where there are sexual images almost everywhere we look. Listen, porn is the norm today. Porn is the new norm today. I shouldn't say new because men have always gravitated to it. And now women are. It's, not, it's, it's no shock that women gravitate to it also. So women, you're not exempt. And the greatest danger of all in our culture today with the, the area of porn is the Internet. 
As Pastor Kent Hughes says, what makes the Internet so dangerous is that it is anonymous, it's accessible, and it's affordable. One Internet expert, he writes this, based on my experience, the Internet has become Satan's number one tool in the 21st century, and it seems to be, more, to be a more silent infection into the body of believers because it typically only involves the user and their computer. And now, not just the computer, but with your handheld device. You can go to Starbucks and look at porn. You can be anywhere and look at your porn. The Puritan Thomas Watson was right on when he said that pornographic pictures secretly convey poison to the heart. So guard your eyes. I'm not here to tell you what that means and doesn't mean. I'm not here to be legalistic about it and to give you all the rules, do's, and don'ts. But men, primarily, that means we better be wise. Because... If we're not wise, we will find ourselves like David sooner or later. So, men, what do we want? Number three, though, guard your mind. Guard your mind. Make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh, because here's what happened. The more David looked at Bathsheba, the more he wanted Bathsheba. Sin was starting to take control. And as David began to fantasize about Bathsheba, he found himself unable to turn away. And so rather than fleeing from temptation like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife, David began to make provision for his lustful flesh to gratify his desires. In other words, David, he began to toy with the possibilities with Bathsheba in his mind. 2 Samuel 11, verse 3 says, The woman was very beautiful. Listen, God doesn't say that by accident. It's intentional. And she was. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now at this moment, although no outward sin has taken place, David has already committed adultery in his mind. And now his lust leads him into deliberate sin. This is the way lust works when left unguarded. It takes on a power of its own, pulling us in deeper and deeper until we feel powerless to resist. And since David was the king, let me tell you, he could do what most men can only dream of doing. If he wanted a woman, he could take her. And so that's exactly what he did. He took Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11, verse 4 says, Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. It all seemed like such a small sin. Only a one-night stand. Only a moment of weakness, that's all. But soon, as you know the story, Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant. And the cover-up started then. And you know the rest of the tragic story. And for a while, it seemed like David just might get away with his sin of adultery. But his cover-up failed miserably because of what we read later on in the same chapter of 2 Samuel 11. You go down to verse 27 and it says, The thing, the thing displeased the Lord. 
the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's why he got caught. As we tell Jack and Tyler, be sure your sins will find you out one way or another. God sees it, God knows it, and God certainly held David accountable. From the moment he decided to act on his lust, his life became a tragic series of disappointments. He lost almost everything God had given to him. David learned firsthand what we still haven't learned over 3,000 years later. He learned firsthand that the punishment for adultery far outweighs the pleasure of adultery. Now, there are many other lessons to learn from the story of David and his lustful affair with Bathsheba, such as we cannot hide our sin from God. Listen, may I be so blunt, you are a fool to think you're going to hide your sin from God. You may hide it from your spouse, you may hide it from your children, you may hide it from a coworker, even God's people here in the church for a while, but we do not hide our sin from God. Another lesson we learn is that sin always has consequences. Always. It always has consequences. But we also learn this, folks, and please learn this, that when we sin, there is always a pathway back to purity. Don't you like that one? I love that lesson. Because we're all lusty sinners at heart. And what we learn from the story of David here is that God offers grace to lusty sinners like us who repent of their sin, accept his forgiveness, and seek to sin no more. You can read about David's confession of his sin in Psalm 51. I challenge you to do it. It's a great passage there. Notice just some of the first few verses here where he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Yes, David still had to face the consequences of his sin. But his sin was forgiven and his guilt was taken away. And when God confronts us, with the guilt of sexual sin. Listen, we have a choice, folks. We have a choice. And if we keep hiding our sin, we can be sure that it will destroy us in this end. But if we repent of our sin, God will offer us His grace, His mercy, and His forgiveness. So let me close with one last question. Are you ready for it? Here's the question. Are you a lusty sinner here this morning like David? Now let that question penetrate your heart. Because I know the answer for me. And I probably know the answer for most of us here. Are we lusty sinners? Listen, don't delay... And don't despair. The answer to your question is to run to the cross where Jesus is waiting to wash you clean. There's always a pathway back to purity with God. When we deal with our lusty sin, His way, not our way. Let's bow our heads.
Listen, Zach's going to come, or Bill and the praise team, and we're going to sing a verse. And the goal here at this response time is not to point out lusty sinners in our audience because we would all be standing and sitting in the same boat. The goal here this morning is for you to search your own heart and to run to the cross and seek God's forgiveness for your own lusty sin. And it doesn't matter what level it is. Whether it's just in the heart or whether you've committed sexual immorality in and of itself. There's a pathway back to your purity when we run to the cross. And this is your opportunity. This is your time to do just that.